analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Nice looking day forming up in Kamloops. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, we heard right here on this show, Terry Lake making it official. He's seeking the federal liberal nomination uh, yesterday on the show. Today we're going to get a reaction from the person he's going to challenge, uh, Kamloops Member of Parliament, Kathy McLeod, will be in studio. We're going to dive into the Mueller report, get an uh, analysis and reaction from uh, Jeffrey Myers a little later on. And we'll also talk about some really promising news on the peanut allergy front for parents who have children that are plagued by that particular allergy and I know how important and frustrating that can be so stay tuned to the show uh, a little later on but first off we're going to talk all the exciting things about uh, Kamloops geography real pleasure to welcome into uh, the studio Crystal Huscroft Associate Dean of Geography and Faculty of Arts at TRU welcome thank you very much it's and, a pleasure to be here and uh, by the way listeners don't know but uh, we have a bit of a renovation going on so uh, otherwise you and I would be in a nicer studio but we are in fact in what is an audio version of a broom closet at the moment so I apologize for that. It's nice and cozy. <laughs> <laughs> Just fine. All right. So um, I guess first and foremost, um, why you and I were talking about this a little off the air, but you are going to take a sabbatical to work on an, a very exciting project, which is uh, an app to kind of capture some geography and some stuff. Explain what, what this is about. I was fascinated by this. Oh, well, the idea is, is to be able to give um, users of the app uh, an opportunity to take a guided tour around Camlips, and it's going to kind of use technology involved with augmented reality. So the idea is that you can go to a, a stop and then open up the app, listen to some audio, maybe a little bit of video, uh, as well as some animations that explain what you're looking at. Wow. So kind of like a tour guide in your pocket. Wow. So you can use that like a smartphone and an iPad. You can walk through and kind of get different perspectives and even jump through different times in the moment while you're in some specific location. Yeah. The advantages of um, augmented reality is that you can be at a certain location at a place and time and then transport yourself to another time. So for instance, um, users could go down on a riverside park and any time of year but take a look at what it looks like while the south thompson river is in flood mm. or kind of zoom even out take kind of the google earth view wow. of the location look at it in flood or during low flow as well well that sounds very cool what's the timeline i mean i know you're taking a sabbatical of six months to try and figure this whole thing out but yeah. from the point when somebody could download it and use it when when do you think that could happen yeah we're aiming for next summer next summer yeah fantastic that's yeah. Man, technology is amazing, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, tell me a little bit about, I mean, you uh, you were telling me you came from Ontario as a young lady and then fell in love with the mountains, which drove you into geography. And here you are in Kamloops, which has some fascinating geography around it. Uh, tell me a little bit about what fascinates you about this particular region. What, what's really cool out there that people might not know about? Yeah, well, I'm a geomorphologist. And so uh, geologists, they're really interested in the processes deep beneath the surface. Yeah. Um, but I do the geology of the surface. And uh, what's incredible about our region is it's kind of a product of over 260 million years of Earth history. Right. and uh, But some of the more recent events are like the past glaciations. So if you can imagine, between 10,000 and 20,000 years ago, there was an ice age. And we had, over the center of our valley, two kilometers of ice. And that's hard to imagine. Imagine sure. something two kilometers away, <laughs> and then imagine that thickness straight up. Yeah. And uh, that's responsible for, if you take a look at our skyline, of all the rounded mountains because that amount of ice has an incredible opportunity or capacity to mold the landscape. 
And then um, as that ice sheet was melting, it really messed up the local drainages and, <laughs> <laughs> and created some of the really impressive and unique features that we have, like the silt bluffs out at right. Valley View. Okay. Um, that was created by a big ice chunk that sat over downtown and blocked drainage. So a big lake was created. Oh, wow. And uh, neighborhoods like Juniper Ridge, yeah. they were actually waterfront property back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> they had those backyards that looked over the valley, they uh, yeah, they had a beach right in front wow. of them. Realtors, are you listening? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they might not be aware of. <laughs> yeah, they actually had some beach deposits in their backyards. And so if you have a bit of sandy soil in your garden, that's probably why. Wow. And they that lake and those shores have created what looks like, sometimes you can see at sunset, it looks like there's bathtub rings on our valley sides. Mm, and yeah. those are those shorelines from wow. that period. I yeah. understand too that there's some issues in Valley View with the, the geography and the sinkholes that have sort of prevented some building or areas of concern there? Yeah, so um, in the region of the bike ranch, the reason why we have a bike ranch where it is and not um, a subdivision is because that area is subject to um, sinkhole creation and ground collapse. So that silt, those silt bluffs, um, that deposit, if it's saturated because of intense snow melt or rainfall and you load it, you put weight on top of it, Mm -hmm. the ground actually collapses down, which is not very good for homes, <laughs> but it's also not very good for um, outdoor swimming pools. At the Valley View Arena, yeah. there used to be a sw- outdoor swimming pool there, and yeah. the weight of the water in the pool um, caused the ground underneath to collapse and cause leaks, which opened up, and a sinkhole opened up in the middle of the lake. And so, no more pool anymore, and that's why we have an arena down out in Valley wouldn't View. Wouldn't arena, I mean, the building and the ice sheet itself, wouldn't that be heavy as well? Wouldn't that not cause its own pressure? Not as heavy as a pool and it doesn't have the same source of water that can saturate the ground. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, One of the things that fascinates me and we're seeing it in play currently, I mean, we talk about millions of years of evolution and and geography and all that kind of stuff, but uh, we're seeing wildfires now that are tearing up the land and and destroying vegetation. And especially I've noticed recently out in places like Cache Creek, you know, there's more mudslides and more landslides because some of the the vegetation and and the plants and the trees that kind of held the soil together have been eradicated by by a massive forest fire. Uh, How is that sort of changing our area? Yeah, well, um, forests act like big sponges that intercept the water from actually getting into the ground. And so uh, what it effectively does is it makes any kind of rainstorm that occurs in a burn effectively um, like eight, nine, ten times more intense because all the water is getting into the ground instead of being absorbed by the vegetation. And when that happens, that can destabilize the ground, but also just send a lot of water down the drainages that will clean them out and deposit um, what are called debris torrent deposits out on on fans and block our highways and, you know, cause a lot of disturbance. Is there a way to solve that? I I mean, obviously we're talking about like plant and growth over a period of a long bunch of years. Yeah. I don't know if you can just kind of go in and sow grass and solve the problem <laughs> or not, but is there a way to tackle that? It just is what it is? or is there? Yeah, so it, the biggest effects happen in the very first year. Yeah. And they do disappear once grass can establish itself and shrubs come back and so on. Um, but that first year, it's really hard to get in and prevent it because a forest takes decades to be created. So whatever we can do to reduce fire and control fire um, are always really good decisions. 
Kamloops, uh, as I understand, is home to like ancient volcanoes. We see remnants of lots of volcanic activity. Um, but I th- understand there may be some still active sort of towards the Wells Gray Parkish area. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, so um, our local hills, a lot of them have this dark brown rock that Mount Peter, Mount Paul, that is made out of volcanic rock, but they aren't volcanoes per se. Those were actually um, parts, lava flows that were created on volcanoes that existed out in the middle of the Pacific. And they were rafted on the Pacific tectonic plate into BC. So it's kind of mishmashed volcanoes that you said. And those are tens of millions of years old. And Wells Gray, there has been volcanic activity since the last ice age, so um, around 6,000 years ago, there's some cinder cones up there. Um, but most of the volcanism up there is dormant. Okay. Yeah. So sleeping, no. but not dead. <laughs> yeah. Stay sleeping. Exactly. <laughs> well, we always, because Mount, when I grew up in Abbotsford, Mount Baker was always, you always kept a close eye on that because occasionally it would you know, steam a little and remind you, hey, I'm here. Yeah, much more active. You can see (laughs) plumes early morning if the relative humidity is just perfect. As you're driving by Baker, you can see those. Uh, We're down the last couple of minutes, Crystal, but you obviously love going out to hike, which is why in part you're doing the app and you probably look around a lot of stuff. Um, For people out there, where do you like to go for a hike where you kind of go, oh, this is cool or that's cool or I really enjoy getting into this area because of, where would that be? Yeah, well, some of my favorite ideas for hiking hikes are in what's called the Kamloops Geotour. Hmm. And this is a free tour guide of BC or of, of the Kamloops region yeah. and the local landscape. And you can download that guide uh, if you go to tru.ca slash geotour. And those include um, the hoodoos by the airport. Very cool area. Very cool. Um, not only the hoodoos, but there's some slot canyons up mm-hmm. there and there's some um, agate that you can take a look at. Um, I love going up the gullies uh, around Valley View and the, the bike ranch as well. But um, there's beautiful views over um, the valley from Red Lake and Cinnamon Ridge as well. You can take a look at the delta that's mm. growing out into Kamloops Lake. Fascinating area. Hey, thank you for coming in and taking oh, a few minutes. A and I, again, I apologize for the broom closet experience. <laughs> and really, best of luck on the app. I'm fascinated by that. And I can guarantee you once that hits uh, or goes online, uh, I'm going to be all over that. So I'm really looking forward to see how that shapes up. Thank you so much. I have really high hopes for that. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's Crystal Huscroft, Associate Dean of Geography and the Faculty of Arts here at TRU, talking about Kamloops and some of the amazing uh, geographical features of this area. We'll take a quick break and shift gears into politics with Kathy McLeod next. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, you heard her voice there a second ago. Uh, pleasure to welcome uh, Kamloops MP Kathy McLeod into studio. Good morning and great to be here. Yeah, well, and again, I apologize for my previous, I apologize to you. This is a broom closet experience we're having today, but uh, it's plenty of fun. Uh, Kathy, we brought you in because, and you knew this was coming, but uh, Terry Lake has made it official. He is going to seek the nomination Liberal Party. Uh, that should become official in, what, a month or so, whenever they set a nomination date, unless someone challenges them. But I think you're looking at Terry Lake here, we're reasonably certain. So, uh, your reaction to, to that, first and foremost? Well, first and foremost, I don't think it's any surprise. It's the signals have been out there for a long time, and certainly I've been waiting to hear not only who the Liberal candidate's going to be, but of course the NDP and the Green, but you know, certainly from my perspective, the biggest issue for any Liberal candidate in this riding is going to be the current government and the baggage of Justin Trudeau, which you know, certainly in my opinion is significant and it's very negative. 
Uh, have you heard anybody from the NDP yet? Any I haven't heard anything okay. from the other parties at all, actually. Uh, I mentioned this to Howie earlier. I mean, um, it's, a, it's a give and take. We, the only comparator we have to a future election is the last election, but each election is its own animal and, and unique unto itself. But in 2015, uh, you faced NDP and Liberal challengers. Uh, there's about, what, it's just over a 3,000 vote difference between yeah. yourself and the third place Liberals and the NDP in the middle there. Uh, do you anticipate, again, we're, we're waiting to see how this thing forms out, do you anticipate another close fight? because Terry Lake does have um, probably more name recognition than the previous Liberal guy that you that you faced. So, Well, you know, certainly if you look at the past history, um, the NDP has always been the second strongest in this riding. Yeah. And, you know, the Liberals were down to 6,000 votes in 2011 and, and very, very few in other years. So certainly 2015 was extraordinary for the Liberals. And what, again, I'm hearing is I have people that are coming up to me and saying, you know, Kathy, in 2015 I voted Liberals because because I thought Justin Trudeau was going to bring something to the table. And then they're saying, but I am so sorry, and I'll never do that again. Mm. So that's not an uncommon thing that I'm hearing. People regretting their vote in 2015. So, you know, really the dynamics of any particular race, as we can see, um, can change. And and who knows what's going to happen in uh, 2019. No, you're right. There is a dynamic in a federal race that it kind of revolves around the face of the party. In, in the Liberals' case, it's Mr. Trudeau. In your party's case, it's Mr. Scheer. Uh, but the subset of that is there's also local issues that people want to talk about and want some kind of voice to Ottawa, which is your job as the MP. So um, as far as local issues, what do you see right now forming up that, that will sort of be the issues tossed at you and your and your challengers and debates and things like that? You know, certainly infrastructure is always a big issue. And, you know, I'm really proud of our record in terms of infrastructure. I look, Domtar, for example, 70% decrease in particulate emissions. That was through some green transformation money. You look at the amazing work that's been done on the Trans-Canada. That's been in partnership with the provinces. So certainly we have a strong history in terms of infrastructure, infrastructure projects that have been done, but obviously that's an ongoing um, challenge. And I know every municipality in our riding has goals in terms of infrastructure. The other one that, you know, certainly I've heard regularly about is connectivity, uh, both cellular and broadband throughout the region. And we know in our rural communities, it's critical in terms of their ability to attract a a new sort of person to the area who really wants to work remotely. So, you know, those are absolutely priorities. And, of course, I think regardless of the party, we're all very, very concerned about the opioid crisis. Mm. Uh, To touch on something that you touched on there, uh, Terry Lake told me yesterday that one of the reasons that he's motivated to run is he feels that this region is not getting the attention and the investment from federal government historically that it should have. He wants to be a voice for that. Uh, His remarks sort of encompass a Obviously, the current Liberal government, but uh, and, but you know previous Conservative and Liberal regimes as well. Do you do you agree with that assessment uh, or no? Um, absolutely not. I mean, I look at the funding charts, and I've always been very transparent. In uh, certainly up to 2015, we had some of the highest investments throughout the country into this riding, and you know so certainly, and that's continued. You don't get to when you're opposition as both uh, you know Peter and Todd know. You don't get to hand out the big checks anymore, <laughs> yeah. but you certainly get to advocate for projects. And so certainly I look at this riding and the dollars that have been invested, they might be quieter dollars because you're not out there doing the announcement with the media coverage, but certainly a really solid record. And I think there's been just in the last couple of years alone, $80 million. 
Um, again, your opposition MP, but uh, our MP, uh, um, one of the big projects is the Trans Canada Highway. The NDP provincial government campaigned on we're going to fast track it. We're going to do it so much faster than the previous. Mm-hmm. Um, is there some muscle to be brought to bear federally there? Because there are federal dollars at play in these projects. Yeah. So, so typically the transportation dollars they go to the province, and projects are approved in terms of both the priorities, federal priority and provincial priority. But you know, typically the federal government does bow a little bit to the province. So, you know, certainly I think Todd could speak to the fact that, you know, the NDP might have shifted priorities from where his priorities were as a transport minister. Yes, there's the ability to bring some pressure on that. You know, I think, you know, certainly there's an assumption that the Liberals might win again. They might, but I think there's also a good chance that we could be looking at a Conservative government in 2019. Uh, speaking of that, um, provincially at least, there seems to be this crazy momentum where it's Conservative government, Conservative government, Conservative government. We saw it lately in Alberta, uh, saw it last night in Prince Edward Island. There seems to be a wave of blue sweeping across the country at the provincial level. Uh, tea leave reading is always fraught with uh, you know concern, but uh, does this signal to you a rise of conservatism that could affect the federal election or no? I, I think... W- I wouldn't read the tea leaves ever in terms of a federal election, for <laughs> you're, sure. You're a wiser person than I. <laughs> but, but I think what you're hearing is people are concerned. They're having trouble with their you know, day-to-day living, and they see... Um, so, for example, the main estimates that came out yesterday, the current federal government is spending 8% more. So they're getting a little bit more revenue, but they're, they haven't increased their budget by 8%. That's extraordinary. I mean, you look, and I'll use the example, again, of municipal governments... If they all of a sudden jacked up your property taxes by 8%, you can imagine what would be people would be saying. So I think what we have across Canada is, you know, the carbon tax is going to make it very, very difficult. People are really concerned right now. I look at gas prices and I find it ironic that, you know, the governments who want the carbon tax, who want gas prices high, all of a sudden are worried about high price of gas. It's an absolutely hypocritical stance that you want the prices high and then all of a sudden you realize that it's hurting people and it's really hurting people in rural communities where they don't have a lot of options for transportation. On the flip side, someone could say, but listen, I mean, the sense of the carbon tax is the invisible hand economically. You make things the price, uh, you make things high priced and it drives people from those habits and then the environment is the ultimate winner. So so I think we're, we're going to push back. We're going to be releasing our environment plan soon. I think it's going to be a plan that works. And in actual fact, emissions only went down during the time of our government. So we actually saw a decrease in emissions, and that was related to the phase-out of coal-fired plants. Mm. It was related to the new vehicle standards that we put in. You know, certainly the experts that I've heard from say the carbon tax is not high enough yet to drive behavior, if it goes as high as it needs to, to drive changes in behavior, we're really going to be in trouble. So I think there's other ways to tackle it, and I'm really looking forward to releasing our environment plan in the next couple of months. Uh, final question, because we're flat out of time, but I just want to, because you and I have talked about this before, you want to win. Uh, you know, we have Conservative, we have NDP, we have Liberal, uh, but also we have a democracy that embraces all sorts of different political ideologies, and lately we've seen a wave of extremism that is, I think, corrosive 
to our democracy. We want to have respectful debate from these different political points of view. So uh, with the federal election looming and a bunch of crazy swirling around out there, what do you think your responsibility and the responsibility of your challengers is to try and raise that bar? Fight to win, but at the same time, you know, not devolve into the craziness that we've seen. And I don't think, hopefully, you'll see any disagreement from the candidates as we embark on this election. There is enough policy differences in terms of, you know, how you spend taxpayers' dollars, how we're going to approach the environment, what are the priorities in terms of our areas. So there's lots of great discussion that needs to be had in terms of where we're going to go as a country, where we're going to go as an area. We don't have to devolve into those. It, it really is nasty out there. The online environment is nasty. And it is very difficult. And it's very worrisome, no question. Absolutely. Kathy, always a pleasure. Thank you. Great, and we'll, you. Uh, we'll do our next talk in a real studio, I promise. <laughs> That's Kamloops MP Kathy McLeod. Let's take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll uh, analyze the Mueller report with Jeffrey Myers. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Been looking forward to this conversation. We had the redacted Mueller report finally hit the table last week. Uh, we want to bring on Jeffrey Myers now, TRU lecturer and lawyer, to discuss uh, what he makes of this whole thing. Uh, good morning, Jeffrey. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Nice to be on. Uh, nice to have you on. Okay, well, let's get right to it. A uh, lot to digest here, but uh, off the top, uh, what's your sort of uh, general assessment of what you saw last week? Well, yeah, now I've had a little more time to, to digest. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's so it's really hard to, there's so much to say, really. I mean, the top line story, the narrative, as it were, you know, has been formed early on by the fact that the Attorney General, two weeks before the redacted report was released, gave us this four-page summary, right? And in that four-page summary, uh, you know, there was only one or two very sort of short fragment excerpts from uh, the Mueller report uh, to the effect concluding that the um, body of crimes which Mr. Trump and Mr. Barr uh, describe as collusion, and again, as, as you know now, and as I, we've discussed on many occasions, they don't really refer to any actual crimes, just a kind of notional idea of a series of different um, political crimes, including conspiracy, uh, that there was, no, there was insufficient evidence uh, to bring a case against uh, Mr. Trump for that. And on the second hand, the second volume of the report, that there was this conclusion that there uh, that there wouldn't be that the, that the attorney general, that is Mr. Barr, in consultation with Mr. Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, had concluded that there would there was not a sufficient basis to bring uh, any kind of um, charges for obstruction of justice, but had included in that quotation that sort of mysterious language. Where, um, where Mr. Mueller had said um, effectively that although he couldn't conclude decisively that there was a that there was no case for obstruction of justice, and he would say if there was that he wasn't fully exonerated, right? Yeah. It's just that he wasn't fully exonerated. In fact, it was later on in the, when the report came out in full. It wasn't in that excerpt where it said that you know Mr. Mueller also said you know if he felt that he was fully exonerated, he would have said so. And so then, it, so then we got the, the, the redacted report comes out and everybody, it's 430 
98 pages, and folks have opportunities to sort of begin to digest and think about it. And some of the better, um, more lawyerly analysis of the um, of the redacted report, which have emerged, particularly through the Lawfare blogs, the Brookings Institution, which is really, I think, the leading edge of of of, of this on the kind of you know the basic getting out a legal, a legal understanding of it, um, you know, in a, in remarkably quickly, um, but with a great deal of uh, precision and um, credibility. So the Lawfare blog is really the leading place for that. I recommend your listeners to it. If they follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Myers, they'll see I, I, I um, link to it frequently. Yeah. What they demonstrate uh, on their blog and the various contributors do, many of whom are American constitutional um, scholars, is the way in which the specific language that Mr. Barr sort of cherry-picked out of the um, the the report can then be contextualized amidst the phrases which were around it as well as the other um, uh, content in the report to demonstrate a, a really quite a different story on a number of levels. And one of those levels, of course, is idea, and I think you and I discussed this before when we've spoken previously, and I was suspect about this, and I think we now have reason, now that we've seen the report, to, to realize this is much, much more ambiguous. It, was, it, was it really the fact that, you know, Mr. Mueller left this to the, to the Attorney General to make a determination, particularly around obstruction of justice, or really what he was doing was referring this to Congress to make the assessment uh, uh, around it, and in effect his, his job was to give a kind of uh, assessment of the evidence to Congress Remember, it's a bit arcane, but remember that the the um, special prosecutor, the 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 law governing Mr. Mueller's mandate and his report in the first place, is a less expansive mandate and a less expansive law than the one that that. Um, uh, regulated the conduct, for example, of um, Ken Starr in the in the nineties in the impeachment report into um, impeachment inquiry into Bill Clinton. That was a much more robust. Uh, role that he was given and a much larger discretion to go directly to Congress to refer uh, impeachment and so that the mandate and the ambit that Mr. Mueller had was a more restrained one partially because the political consensus at the end of the Clinton impeachment was that the um, the independent prosecutor had you know been given too much of a kind of mandate to do a sort of wide-ranging um, report, which had ended up sort of to stepping over the line into sort of, you know, pursuing areas where it wasn't really in the national interest. Yeah. It's, and since then, executive powers, of course, cemented itself in a variety of ways. So that's just touching the iceberg yeah. of it. I'm sorry, yeah. Shane, but I, that, that's the only way, I, the, the, the <laughs> in way I can think. It's all good. Why don't we jump into specific examples? Because uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the obstruction of justice front, but we look at this report, uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that jumps out here, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, you know, Trump tried to fire Mueller. Uh, yeah. Trump directs McGahn, who's the White House counsel, at the time to deny yes. that he tried to fire Mueller. Uh, he yes. tried to gut the investigation. He's reached out to potential witnesses, both <laughs> uh, publicly and in private. Uh, you know, one yes. of them, Paul Manafort, trying to urge them not to cooperate with the investigation. I mean, uh, you would know more about this than I, but I mean, uh, my knee-jerk reaction to just those things, and there's more, is that that seems to amount to at least a serious look at obstruction of justice. Is, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So let me just say a few things about this. Okay, first thing was that the, the Doug McGahn um, story, and that's the former White House counsel. Uh, that story about how he basically was the account in the in the Mueller report, that for your listeners if they don't know it, that he was basically directed by Mr. Trump to um, to fire uh, Special Counsel Mueller. Um, and, he, and he refused to do so, effectively saying that that would 
would trigger a Saturday Night Massacre, and he wasn't prepared to do that. He was on record for saying a lot of things, including the fact that the president, you know, was basically advising him to do illegal things, and he was refusing to do so. He'll become the star um, and the star witness uh, before Congress, and uh, it's clear it looks to the president waived executive privilege by letting him co- co- cooperate in the first place. So I think he's not going to be able to stop that. That's an astounding episode and lies at the center, I think, by most accounts of the strongest possible case for obstruction of justice, a case which I think and I think should probably be litigated in the Senate in an impeachment trial. But again, some Democrats agree, some don't, and there's a lot of politicking around that particular point. But when you look at the question of what is it, right, what is obstruction, yeah. there's the, all of the, there's a series of different, uh, you know, um, uh, particular, um, you know, ways of defining it. But the best way to define it as a, as a lawyer is by looking at what are the elements of it. And when we talk about the elements of an offense, we mean what are the things that the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in order to convict somebody for that offense. Now, Again, when we're talking about impeachable crimes uh, that are under the supervision of Congress, we're not necessarily talking about crimes that are, you know, that are in a where you get proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and you're, you know, incarcerating somebody in the criminal law system. We're talking about removing somebody from public office. It's not the same level of guilt which is normally required, mm-hmm. but the way that this report has been presented by Mr. Mueller for a variety of reasons, most of them good and having to do with Mr. Mueller's kind of. Um, desire to really hew narrowly to his mandate, um, they say that these elements, um, and they, they don't conclude on whether all the elements are met in these series of events which are laid out, including the McGann ones, which I say among about eight or nine others are really remarkable. But what those elements are is, is there an obstructive act? Does the president carry out some kind of act which is, which is defined as obstructive? And then is there, is there a nexus between that obstructive act and some kind of official proceeding? In this case, most often the Mueller investigation um, itself or earlier investigations into by Mr. Co- Mr. Comey and others into Russian interference. And then the third element is, is it done with a corrupt intent? And in many of the cases, that's the hardest one. Again, looking at a balance of, pr- looking on the, um, sorry, proving beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's the criminal standard, right? Yeah. Um, uh, very ha- hard to make out is that question of corrupt intent, which lawyers sometimes call scienter which means the the kind of intention and so and that's a very high intent intent and so a lot of what you see in these cases and again the McGann one and a couple others can be distinguished and a lot of legal scholars have weighed in on this and said no we've got the requisite intent here and this should this is why we need impeachment to hear this in at trial and probably that's what Mr. Mueller intended and again we'll see if he's called upon to testify and what he says or if he's subpoenaed but the, this question of corrupt intent is the most complicated part, but it's certainly not the case that Mr. Mueller concluded that there wasn't instances in which all of these elements had been met. In fact, he lays out the record for it, uh, an evidentiary record, and suggests in, in parts of the report that this could be sufficiently something in which after Mr. Trump was out of office, he would no longer have immunity for, and he could potentially be subject to prosecution on. Yeah. Uh, real. We're almost out of time here, Jeff, but yeah. uh, there's lots to dive into. We need another hour yeah. at least. Uh, but a real quick question, uh, just mm-hmm. on the things I've laid out. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, is there enough there to convene a grand jury and throw the issue in front of them and let them decide or no? 
Uh, well, no, because the, the problem is the Office of Legal Counsel, and that is a binding decision for the government effectively, has concluded that there's no ability to indict a sitting president. So the only remedy which is available is impeachment uh, by the House of Representatives and then a trial in the Senate, a removal of the president from office, and then potentially criminal liability after the fact, provided that the statute of limitations, particularly on obstruction of justice, which is five years, hasn't completely run. So it would be important if you want to have that as an option to get Mr. Trump defeated electorally in 2020 or impeach, uh, unless on the assumption that Mr. Trump and his uh, people continue to obstruct justice, which by all accounts and all evidence they continue to do, in which case that there would be a constant renewal of the statute of limitations. But, you know, effectively the remedy for a sitting president is uh, impeachment. Um, It's a political remedy, and it's up to the House to do it. And I think it's interesting to watch the 2020 uh, candidates come out. Some of only a few of them have come out and said decisively, you know, without playing politics with it, that they want impeachment. And others have given reasons to wait. And there's all kinds of discussions, you know, we could have about that. But as a legal matter, impeachment is the remedy. Jeffrey, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And I uh, wish we had more time on this one. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we'll talk about it again. I'm sure. Thanks uh, for having me on, and a pleasure being with your listeners as always. That's Jeffrey Myers, a lawyer and TRU lecturer, weighing in uh, with his analysis of the Mueller report, a redacted version which hit last week. By the way, we're going to hear a lot more on this. There's uh, 14 investigations uh, that Mueller referred outside, so uh, that story will continue to unwind and we'll follow it as it does. Uh, We'll take a quick break on The Woodford Show, talk about peanut allergies and some promising news on that front after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, new data published this week in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice suggests that oral immunotherapy is a safe practice for preschool-aged children to deal with peanut allergies. Some promising signs there. The study's lead author, Leanne Soler, joins us. Good morning, Leanne. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm great. How are you doing? I am well. So let's dive into this because uh, I have some uh, parents uh, who are friends whose uh, children have peanut allergies and it can be an extremely uh, difficult thing to deal with. Uh, we deal with it every day. My kid's not allergic, but, you know, we send them to, to daycare and stuff and have to make sure mm-hmm. there is no peanuts of anything resembling peanuts and, and anything he's eating at school, we send to school with him. So um, tell me a little bit about uh, about some what looks like a, some promising ways to treat this. What did you guys find and, and and how how can we roll this out? Yeah, so um, thanks for that question. So we, we studied uh, peanut oral immunotherapy, which is giving small amounts of peanut um, and in gradually increasing the dose up to a maintenance where the children are, are eating um, this maintenance dose at home. So uh, what we did was um, we studied 270 children across Canada and um, 90% of those patients completed the desensitization, so up to the maintenance dose. Um, they, the, and the most important and exciting finding for us was that um, there was only a 0.4% of the patients ha- having a severe reaction. So that represents actually only one of the patients who had a severe reaction. Mm. Um, and out of more than 40,000 doses of the peanuts that were administered uh, on a daily basis to these children, only 12 of those needed an EpiPen. Um, so that's 0.03% of children requiring um, an epinephrine auto-injector or EpiPen. Um, this suggests that peanut oral immunotherapy is safe in the vast majority of preschoolers. So we're really excited about that. 
Okay, so where do we where, where do we go from here, Leanne? I mean, there's probably lots of parents who, who may be listening right now and think, oh my God, this this may be a saving grace. I mean, uh, a study is one thing. How do we move into saying, okay, uh, we can now use this among the general population? What stands between us mm. and that? Yeah, so actually the really interesting thing about this study was that the majority of allergists who participated were from the community. So um, actually only 10% of patients in our study were from uh, BC Children's Hospital. 90% of the patients, so 243 of the patients out of 270 were from community. So that includes um, allergist offices in Vancouver area as well as Victoria, BC, um, and across the country. So really we believe that this is ready for prime time. It's ready to be used in the community, um, but it should be done by an allergist only. So that's a caution. Um, Parents should not be going out to the grocery store and trying this at home. Um, It should not be done by untrained uh, either pediatricians or general practitioners uh, unless there's uh, supervision by an allergist. So we do think that it is ready for um, for allergists. And the, the paper that we published last week actually has some uh, uh, diagrams and information for an allergist who could actually go out and do it themselves with the data that we provide. Um, and we feel that that's, you know, that is the, the next step. Um, at least in British Columbia, the allergists that we've spoken with are very excited or were very excited about this new data coming out because they, they have been itching to get started with oral immunotherapy, but they didn't really know what the procedure was and how safe it was going to be. So we feel that this data has now, you know, paved the way for that to happen. Um, unfortunately, there are very long waiting lists and, you know, it can't, the availability of oral immunotherapy in BC is still quite new. Uh, it's a new treatment, so it's not that available in many allergist offices uh, so far, but we, um, we are very happy that it has started to be offered at BC Children's Hospital in this preschool age group, um, as well as in the community. Uh, now, in terms of the next step, yeah. we are hoping to uh, expand this to oral, older children. Um, there are there are lots of studies showing that the risk of reactions is higher in older children, and they require um, more management and uh, potentially have more epinephrine and EpiPen use. So we will have to proceed a bit slower with those families. Um, they are higher risk. So that is kind of our next step is looking at older children as well as um, looking at some of the long-term benefits of this treatment in the preschoolers as well as older children and looking at foods other than peanut. So we only focused on peanut in this study. Right. Um, just out of curiosity, is there, do mm-hmm. you know, are you aware of anything that mothers can do like before? I know when, when my wife was pregnant with our little guy, she mm-hmm. made a point of eating like lots of peanut kind of stuff, just thinking that, okay, we're, some of that's going to trickle down to the baby while she, while he's mm-hmm. inside me. And, and then, you know, we'll kind of help combat that, uh, the potential to have that allergy. Cause she was really frightened that he, that he might, mm-hmm. is that, does that yeah. hold water? Yeah, so, or? um, so I, there's there's guidelines from 2017 that uh, you know it's really important to introduce these foods early. So introducing peanuts early, um, as around six months of age. So that has been shown to help prevent peanut allergy. Now this, the data isn't really available currently for other food allergies, but we expect that that mechanism would work the same. So um, feeding peanut early on in, in childhood around six months of age, kind of when you're feeding the first foods, is very important. And of course, trying to do so in a way that is um, safe for the baby. So having a non-choking form of peanuts, maybe some peanut butter and water, um, something like that, that would help with 
with actually trying to prevent peanut allergy. Obviously, that is the goal is to be able to prevent it so that we don't have to treat it. Right. Yeah. Uh, just a real quick final question. Uh, you mentioned long wait times and uh, some roadblocks and getting it out among the general public in sort of a, a timely manner. Um, how 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 best to deal with that? Are we talking about um, more training, more funding? I mean, what are what are the answers there to make it more broadly available and and available a lot quicker? Yeah, definitely both. Um, the funding piece, we have been working with the Children's Hospital here to try to make it more accessible, um, and we've been very, very happy with uh, currently with our, our success. And we are, as well, fundraising through BC Children's Hospital Foundation um, to be able to expand this across the province. In terms of training, it's super important for allergists to also have some training um, around oral food challenges. So if they have feel comfortable doing, uh, doing these oral food challenges in their clinics, then oral immunotherapy is a very similar procedure. So the training would be very quick. Uh, and, and of course, we are hoping that at, at some stage we would be able to help treat, uh, train the pediatricians and general practitioners to offer this treatment so that we can uh, alleviate the load. Because if there's only 30 allergists in British Columbia, it's going to take a long time to mm-hmm. treat the over 80,000 children with food allergy. No, so we, we do have a long way to go, but we're very hopeful that with the data that we have currently, as well as our future plans, studying um, other foods and older children and and how we can actually implement this within the province. We, we do feel that we'll be able to to help everybody. Leanne, uh, thank you so much. I know that there's a lot of parents who are probably listening and uh, looking at that and, and seeing some hope finally. Uh, good luck with uh, making it more broadly available and thanks for taking some time this morning. Thanks, Shane. Have a good day. You as well. That's Leanne Hi. Solar. She's the uh, study of a lead author of a study that uh, is uh, showing some promising signs of treating uh, children with peanut allergies. Also, an allergy research manager at the BC Children's Hospital. And that's it for today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.